Now I want to get into the press. This is the Press Man Podcast. And I think it's one of the parts of the game now which is, is increasing, and that is pressing. We're talking about press man technique. The, again, you won't find this information anywhere in the whole world. This is the Press Man Podcast. Press, 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 press. Everybody wants to play press man. And we're going to try to put everything together in this particular phase of teaching our press man-to-man coverage. What is a full-court press? So we're going to try and have a look at the boys and their pressing and how they do it. This is the Press Man Podcast. And you watch the games on Saturday and Sunday and they talk about the press, press, press. This is episode four of the Press Man Podcast. I am joined today. It's a tremendous honor to be joined by three-time National Coach of the Year and head coach of Creighton Volleyball, Kirsten Bernthal Booth. Coach, thanks for uh, being here. It's an honor to be here. Thanks. So it's the summertime, spring session's done. I know you've you've done some things with the family. What's going on in your life right now? You know, it's interesting. I My mother would always say, Allie will always find things to stress about. May is supposed to be the easiest month for a college volleyball coach. It's called the quiet period, which means we can't recruit. Um, but what May is for me is some relaxing time, but trying to now it's really it's a time of brainstorming and trying to get ahead. And, you know, we had a staff meeting this week trying to, you know, be forward thinking, like, how do we get better? So I love May because it is a time to kind of reflect. It's not just the day to day grind. It's reflecting and trying to to advance the program and advance, you know, all aspects of our personal life, you know, things along those lines and build us as people. And you as coaches, you guys put in some some serious hours. It's definitely not a nine to five. So I'm sure that break is is welcome. Yes. I don't know if you ever turn it off if you're a coach, but um, yes, you try to plan in some family vacations and force some time away during May. All right. So what we do here on Press Man is, is we have those deep personal sort of biographical conversations. And the way I like to start is just where'd you grow up? What was childhood like? Well, I was born in Washington, D.C., lived in Maryland until I was four. My dad was a professor. Uh, then we moved to Waterloo, Iowa. And then in third grade, I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska. And so I was in Lincoln. Yeah, I'm a graduate, I graduated from high school from Lincoln East in, in Lincoln. Um, then went to Truman State, which is in Missouri. I uh, was a volleyball player there, D2 school. Um, fell in love while I was an undergrad. And he and I decided we would go to grad school together. So we looked at some schools in the Midwest. Eric went to law school, um, and I got my master's in higher education at the University of Iowa. He was from Iowa. So that's how we landed at Iowa. We did get married, so that did have a happy ending on that one. (laughs) And um, so did grad school at Iowa, was the volunteer coach at Iowa, you know, a I don't know how much you want to dive into that, but I ended up being the interim head coach in the spring when I was 22, which led to a lot of doors opening professionally. Um, Did some high school coaching after that as an assistant and then got my first head coaching collegiate job at a junior college, Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Did that for three years. And then um, in 2003, had the opportunity to come to Creighton and they haven't been able to get rid of me since. I'm sure there's been times they wanted to. It's <laughs> interesting. You moved. It seems like you moved around a lot when you were young, and then sort of settled in what late elementary school, I guess. Third grade. Yeah. Yep. yep. 
um, I think a traditional story. Some one of the parents, in this case, it was my father, was moving up the professional ladder a little bit, and uh, I think I can still remember. Gosh, I think it was seventh grade. Um, I think SMU was really trying to get him to come and lead their, he was a speech pathologist. He just recently passed and, um, they were trying to get him. And I think he was pretty intrigued by the opportunity. And I, my mother was like, Oh no, we are not moving. And, <laughs> and I remember throwing a fit also thinking it would be the end of the world that if we left. So, uh, fortunately, I, fortunately, unfortunately, but I, I did love my childhood. So fortunately we stayed put and, um, he finished his career at the university of Nebraska. So when did volleyball become the thing for you? You know, I was a tennis player was my primary okay. sport. I played, you know, I was the kid that did every sport. I swam competitively till I was 12. I did gymnastics competitively till about fifth grade and um, but started to play tennis young. And then I, this is kind of a funny story. I can still remember it was Katie Novak was her name. I think it was eighth grade. I'm walking in the junior high hall and she hands me a flyer and it is for Lincoln Juniors Volleyball Club. And her comment was, I don't like volleyball. Maybe you'd like this. She had gotten the flyer from the volleyball coach who was a junior high gym teacher at our school. I didn't have that teacher for gym. I had a different gym teacher. So I literally went at home. But here's the difference in club volleyball today to then. So that was, you know, it was $40 to participate. And you could fundraise it all if you didn't have the means to pay the $40. So it wasn't a big risk for my parents to be like, hey, do you want to try this out? So a lot of volunteer coaches. And that's how I got in in eighth grade. Uh, just a chance meeting in the hallway. Absolutely. Handed the flyer. Yeah. And here we are. That's mm-hmm. awesome. So it competition was a big part of, of your young life. How do you think that shaped who you became as a, as a person and as a coach? Well, you know, I look at my background, both of my, my dad, uh, went to Wayne state for his undergrad, but was a track athlete. I'm sorry. No, he did. He was a football player, a tennis player and may have done track. I can't remember. He was also student body president and in the orchestra. And I think in college, he even went and played at, at halftime. I know he did that at least in high school. So he was very competitive and very involved. And my mom, you know, she grew up pre-Title IX. And my mom is an incredible athlete. Um, maybe not now, but back in the day, she was a great athlete, very competitive. She watched sports constantly, and she didn't get the opportunity. So I think, you know, both my older brother and I were in a lot of competing, you know, sports and, and things along those lines. Um, and I think it, it stemmed from my parents' love of sports. And then I don't know whether competitiveness is something that is, you know, that is innate thing or whether it develops probably a little bit of both, but, um, there was definitely some sibling rivalry between Brad and I that, uh, created some of the competitive juices for both of us, I think. And when you look back now and you say that your, your mom didn't have that opportunity to mm-hmm. compete, um, I know you're very passionate about women's sports and the issues that surround women's sports. I mean, it seems like there's a pin in your in your past right there that, you know, you, you recognize your mother's athletic talents and she never got to display them. Mm-hmm. It, it does. I, it can sometimes like tear me up because she loves competition and she will say to her granddaughters and to me, you know, I didn't get this opportunity. The other thing that I think stands out that, she didn't get is she didn't get the opportunity professionally to really 
pro- I, she was a teacher and she loved being a teacher. And I think she maybe would have, I've asked her, would you have been a teacher again? Yes. But she also will say, I also knew that my choices were probably teacher, nurse, or secretary was kind of what most women did. Now there's those, the, those ones that, you know, led the charge. And I admire those women so much that first, the only woman in med school or the only woman in law school, things along those lines. But, um, you know, the oppor- being the mom of three daughters, you know, the opportunities that they have versus, um, what she had is, is remarkable. And, you know, we just got to continue to provide those opportunities and, and also not take it for granted. I mean, I look at what's happened if we want to go really deep, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan just breaks my heart because, you know, those women were, you know, starting to get opportunities. And now with the Taliban taking over again, you know, those opportunities are being taken away. So we can't ever take for granted that, um, you know, women's rights have gone a long ways, but we don't want to go backwards. Well, certainly not. And it's interesting the ways in which you can relate the social issues in in a climate to the sports issues. I mean, the two are are totally linked. And and you know, I want to talk to you about that. But and we will get there. Um, but I think volleyball. You said you were involved in everything. You played tennis and swimming and and did all the sports. How did volleyball capture your attention more than the others? So through high school, uh, you know, and I was also heavily involved in music. And I I wish my girls were more. I have one that's still playing piano. But I think that's part of thing that's important to me is not just sports, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of different things. Um, But, uh, you know, parallel lives with sports through high school with tennis and and volleyball. I was the better tennis player. I was a D1 tennis player. I ended up being a D2 volleyball player. So I had more opportunities in tennis. And honestly, it came down to people were committing later. So I still hadn't made a decision January of my senior year. I remember sending out VHS tapes uh, to 10 tennis schools and 10 volleyball schools. So, I mean, just how different things are now that you can, you know, send a link to hundreds of schools now. But, um, you know, what it really came down to is uh, I loved the aspect of a team sport. Hmm. And so I think that was the differentiating factor. And I look back and I think I didn't, I loved competing in tennis. I didn't always love to go train in tennis while in volleyball, I loved to go train. So I think some of those different things, but, um, you know, the University of Nebraska did not offer me a scholarship. They offered me a walk-on spot. If they had offered me a scholarship, I think I would have gone there. And I always think, like, gosh, how life could have been quite different if that right. was the case. Um, but obviously, I'm thankful for the, the journey that I've had. So was was Terry Pettit the coach at the time? He was the coach. I was not. Let's be clear. I was not even in the University of Nebraska volleyball's realm of talent. <laughs> but I did. You know, Terry Pettit uh, is really the reason I'm here at Creighton. Uh, Um, Oh, wow. So to give this is I always think a pretty cool story. So uh, his daughter, Catherine, was a freshman when I was a senior at Lincoln East and I did not know her at all. Um, And I didn't know Coach Pettit. I knew who he was. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, this we had a really talented group that was younger than me. Um, But I remember thinking if she comes in with an ego, some of these these teammates of mine are going to eat her alive. <laughs> and I was older than them, so they were nice, but they were pretty strong personalities. And she came in and she was awesome, like really humble, really good player. And we were both setters. So just I just liked her. 
Now, Coach Pettit will say you took her under her wing, your wing, and I mean, it wasn't anything intentional, but I just liked her. So fast forward through college, when I'd come back in the summer, I worked some Nebraska camps. Um, I apply for the Kirkwood job after graduate school. He serves as a reference for me. So I keep in just very peripheral contact with him. Well, when Creighton came open, um, our athletic director, Bruce Rasmussen, had uh, solicited uh, Coach Pettit to help in the search process, which he's done for multiple schools around the country. And I was a name that he passed along. And, you know, so I got an interview probably because he recommended my name. And, you know, lucky, luckily no one else worked out. So I think I got the job, (laughs) but I think, um, you know, it is a testament of, you know, I always say things come full circle. Right. And to try, I mean, I, I had no motive, you know, but just, you know, try to treat people right. And you never know how those things will help or hurt you depending on how you treat each human. So at 22, you get the interim head coaching job in the spring at Iowa. I mean, your head must have been absolutely spinning at that time, taking over a a D1 school when you're barely out of school yourself. It sounds flashier than it was. So what had happened was I was the volunteer in the fall. Uh, The coach had left midseason for personal reasons. So the assistant coach became the interim coach. Um, He had wanted to get the job, but they opted not to hire him. So Come, you know, now they go start the search in January. They're not finding candidates that they're liking. So they're starting the search over. And I really think they wanted to part with the the staff. And for some reason, they thought I was a okay person. And they said, would you be interested in running the spring season? And I remember being scared out of my mind. (laughs) And, um, and it was, it was quite a learning experience. um, But the players, I mean, we had some bad practices, I can remember, but they really did a good job of at least, uh, you know, supporting me because literally one of the players was older than me. So, you know, it was uh, trial by fire, but it opened doors. The next job I got, I mean, at Kirkwood, I got that job because of that being on my resume. Well, opportunities, mm-hmm. they, they show their faces in weird situations. Absolutely. Um, why coaching? What was the draw after you were done with your playing career? What made you want to stick around and and go beyond the sideline? Yeah, you know, I never knew that I was going to be a coach, but I did still love the game when I was done. And I thought I wanted to go into college administration, maybe athletic administration. Thus, I'd done an internship my junior year in college with the Department of Higher Education in Missouri. So I'd spent a semester in Jefferson City, and that had intrigued me a little bit. And then, you know, my father had been an administrator at the collegiate level, so I'd I'd kind of seen that. So um, I went to Iowa and got my master's in higher ed admin and with an emphasis in athletic administration. So I was taking classes from Christine Grant. I don't know. Christine Grant is one of the gurus of Title IX. So that was a pretty cool experience. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I think I thought my path might be some coaching and then athletic administration. Um, and, I, you know, I had some good experiences early with coaching. I also had some really rough experiences. Um, some of it, I think, of my mistakes. Some of it, you know, I, you know, one instance, I first club tournament I ever coached. I'm, I'm a young kid, and we have a phenomenal day. Everyone's happy, and like we lose in the final, and we'd run out of subs, and so someone didn't get in. I'd been playing them all pretty equally, and I had I'll never forget this mother came in and just berated me, and um, it was a moment. 
right? Like I, I was like, whoa, you know, and um, it was hard on me. And so you kind of saw those flashes of this can be tough. And, and, you know, and even by the end, the mother loved me by the end of the season, but I was like, I didn't trust her. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, you're not, you're volatile, man. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't mean to say, I, I think it's really important for especially young coaches to know, I think every coach can tell you it is, it is hard. It is a profession where you're going to have people upset with you. I have people upset with me every year um, because a lot of times decisions that you make, although you try to say these are not personal decisions, it becomes personal for a lot of the athletes and for especially I think for parents. And so, um, so there was, there's definitely been ups and downs. Um, and it, you know, I, but I, I, I love, I love the ups and downs and the, the cycle of coaching, you know, that you're really, really hardcore into something and then it, it slows down and, you know, the ebbs and flows as compared to, I did HR for a little while at Kirkwood and, you know, it was just stable all the time. Uh, and One I speed. liked it, but it was kind of boring, right? Like, One speed. you know, yeah. so I, I like the ebbs and flows of coaching. So I think to me, at least from an outsider's perspective, you exude a lot of confidence, a lot of positivity. And I wanted to talk to you about some of those, those darker times because everybody has them in their professional career. And, and you mentioned the one with the parent, but you know, how do you deal with some of those, those negative situations when the doubts start to flood in? Like, I don't, I don't know if, yeah. if I can do this, if this is for me, uh, you know, how do you, how do you steel yourself against those doubts? Mm -hmm. I think it's hard. I think, um, you know, especially when I was a younger coach, I, I had an instance at Kirkwood that uh, just really went south. And I think a lot of it was my lack of handling it well. Um, and I, I was done. It was midseason. I was like, I'm finishing the year. I'm out of coaching. And, you know, I think like a lot of things in life, first of all, I've always been someone that if I have responsibilities, I'm going to follow through on it. So no matter how down I might be, I'm still going to, I'm still going to get up and I'm going to do it. And then if I want to make a change at the end, at the end of a season, at the end of a day, whatever's appropriate, I can make a change at that point. Um, so I think as I, I mean, in that instance, it was probably October. I had said, okay, I got to finish the season. I'm not going to quit. And, and then, and then if I want to move on, I'm going to do something else. And then by the time I got to that point, I steadied myself. And I think that's the thing that I try to remind myself when I hit difficult times of, okay, let's get through the difficult situation, handle it the best that I can, or learn from the mistakes that we make. Um, and then if I need to, you know, reevaluate at that point, I can. So I just think it's a lot. And I think sometimes when we go through difficult times, people make rash decisions, oh, yeah. right? And so I think you, you got to deal with the difficult time. You got to do your best. You got to, you got to pull up your pants and do it. I think that's an important thing. You cannot run away from difficult conversations, difficult situations. You got to have them. And then you got to take a deep breath. And steal yourself. I mean, it is like you can, I mean, you know this, you go to bed and you're like, I can't do this. And then you wake up the next oh, yeah. day and you're like, let's go. We got to right. do it. So yeah. I think there's a lot of that. And as I've gotten older, when I hit difficult situations, at least now I can fall back and say, okay, I, I can handle this. When I was younger, you're still in that self-doubt stage of, well, maybe I, maybe I can't do this well. I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to say, okay, I can do this well. Maybe I'm not handling this well, or, you know, maybe these things need to change. Um, but you know, you do develop a confidence of like, okay, I, I can do this. Yeah. I think that that's an important point. I think for anyone in any professional realm, um, I mean, I've experienced it with 
trying to make a career out of broadcasting, right? You know, you go and you, you think you have a good broadcast and you're, you're on top of the world. You're feeling like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I can do this. I can make something out of this. And then you have good broadcast after good broadcast after good broadcast. And it seems like nobody's noticing. You're not getting any calls. And, you know, that wave starts to crest and you come down to the bottom and you're like, I don't know if I'm, uh, is this ever going to happen? Do I need to do something else? Do I need to start making real money yeah. instead of chasing this dream? So I think that's a great point of just sort of ride the wave and see what the shore looks like when you get there. Yeah. Right. Yep. It's, it's always, always, I mean, it's, it's a tough thing to know when you're actually on the right path, right? It, you can't see through the trees ahead what, what's around the next bend. You just don't know. So I think for you coming from that, that place of being so young and being thrust into a position and then, you know, taking over a junior college program to where you are now, I think it, it, it shows the benefit of, of that sort of, hey, I'm just going to keep my head down and keep moving yeah. forward. Um, wanted to ask you about becoming a mother. Hmm. Did that change you as a coach, having three daughters? You know, um, I, I will always remember how uh, Bruce Rasmussen handled, you know, I think, I mean, he hired a 27-year-old married female. He probably knew I was going to have kids yes. at some point, statistically. <laughs> And I remember when I went in and said, I'm pregnant, his first comment to me was, you will be a better coach now that you're going to be a mother. And I thought, what a cool response. Yeah. You know, um, it wasn't like, okay, how are we going to manage this? I mean, I knew he'd be supportive, but because my first one was, was at least planned at a good time. My second one, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, but it has. And I would say where it's come into more, uh, it's helped me even more as, as my kids have hit like adolescence. Because what I've learned, you know, you, I think when I was younger, I wanted everyone to buy into their role, buy into your role. So if, if you don't get the starting spot, you got to buy into your role. How that's evolved for me is buy into being a good teammate. Mm. You know, so there's a difference. Like, I think I have more empathy. I, I think I've always been someone that's been empathetic. But I understand if you think you're going to be the starting middle blocker or want to be the starting middle blocker and you don't earn that spot, it hurts. Right. Like, and I think as a parent, I now see that. And I now see that the disappointment when you don't get the role that you want. But I think the other important piece is I also can help mentor my kid on, okay, how do we react to this? Like, okay, so you're not, you're not starting, right? Okay. So what are you going to do on the bench? Are you going to pout or are you going to be a great teammate? You know, so, um, and sometimes the role is not you're not going to get, I mean, my kid, uh, my middle daughter wanted to set last year. She was not going to set period. And so it wasn't an issue of saying, keep working hard. You're going to get the spot. It was, okay, this is the role that you have. How do you make yourself the best at that role? So I think I can help mentor players, current players, my athletes on understanding that it hurts not getting the role that you want, but there are expectations being a part. You chose a team sport. I always say this, if you want to be selfish, go play an individual sport. Not not to say individual sport people are selfish, but you know what I mean? You chose a team sport, so we have to be a good teammate through the good and the bad. So I think that has helped me. I also think I feel like I can connect to parents, and it's hard for it's, – it's much harder as a parent than I realized seeing your kid not uh, – achieve what they want to achieve. And, but I also think it's really important that we consistently give them the right message. And I think Eric and I work really hard to make sure that, um, even when things aren't going the way they want, whether we think it's fair or not, that we are supportive of coaches and trying to lead them down the right path. How has being a coach turned you out as a mother? 
Um, <laughs> well, it's funny because when I lecture my children, which I'm really good at lectures. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. You're a head and, coach. And I wouldn't say good. Um, I was actually doing this recently with my oldest daughter. I was kind of laying into her about something. And I started with, you know, I think you're a great young woman. And she's like, don't give me the sandwich. <laughs> she knows like I'll coach and be like, you know, yeah. positive. Here's the feedback, positive. And I do think she's a great young woman. But uh, so I think I, I probably do that a little bit. Um, you know, I, I give them probably more lectures than they'd like to like to hear. That is awesome. I love that. That's a great story. So you post a lot on Twitter about mental training. And I think this ties into making good teammates and, and dealing with disappointment and success and those things. You probably post about mental things more than you do anything about physical training mm -hmm. and workouts and things like that. So what what is the philosophy there with the mental side of the game? So we started working. So 2011 was by far the toughest year that I've had here at Creighton. We kind of lost the team. There was issues. And um, I, I felt like we needed outside help with it. And a lot of, some of it was that they lost trust in me as a coach. And I could see that with some of them. And so we got the help of Dr. Larry Woodman and Dr. Todd Stoll. And that was through some recommendations. And they came in and started meeting with the team weekly. Well, Dr. Woodman has stayed with our team since then. He's still an integral part of our program. And at that point, it was a lot of culture stuff. You know, how do we communicate with teammates and all of that? And it's evolved over the years as our culture is stabilized. Although I always say you got to every single day you got to work on culture. It right. can, it can fall apart quickly. Um, but we moved into visualization and the science behind that meditation and the science behind that. So a lot of different pieces. So we were doing this stuff with our team consistently. Our players understood, you know, a lot of the different components of it. Um, we always tried to explain the why of why we were doing it. Well, COVID hit and we sent the team home and said, we want you to visualize every day, five minutes of visualization. And there's some science that can say that that ties to about 30 minutes on the court with your muscle memory. And about two or three weeks in, a couple of players say, we're really having trouble doing this on our own because typically we would talk them through the visualization. Craig, my assistant coach would. And uh, so we started, I talked to Dr. Widman. There was no audios out there. So long story short, uh, Craig uh, made audio recordings for our players. So we sent them to them. And I had said, this is a need. Like, we need this. So actually, out of COVID, we started a company called Neurofuel. Um, so a lot of the posts that I make are retweeting um, that. And it's a volleyball-specific mental training app that I truly believe in. Um, we've gotten um, lots of colleges. It wasn't even initially geared toward colleges, but it told me how little even college programs were doing to train mental mental toughness. It's, you know, it's things like it's visualization, sports specific visualization. So that's the differentiator in it. But it also is what we call our elite building blocks. So it's positive self-talk. It's how to use deep breathing in stressful situation. There's things like how do you talk to your coaches? How do you talk to teammates? Um, it's, it's a pretty in-depth library of things to listen to. There's a morning fuel and a night fuel that are really short audios, like two minutes long of framing your day or, you know, framing tomorrow. I just, again, as a mom of adolescents, 
how are we helping? I mean, there's so much mental illness and it's not a mental illness app, but how are we helping kids reframe the thoughts in their head? You know, most people really talk negatively to themselves. Oh, certainly. Jaylee Winters, one of our alums, will talk about it being transformational for her when she started to talk different to herself. She said that she was the meanest person to herself. So when she started talking to herself like a good friend, it was huge for her. Right. So instead of saying, Jaylee, you suck, she was saying, Jaylee, you got the next one, the way that you talk to a teammate. Right. Um, little things, but huge things in life. So I believe in this. I think it, you know, and, and I, when you talk about how I treat my children, we talk a lot about that sort of stuff. Like, how are you talking to yourself and how resilient, you know, most sports are air based volleyball, basketball. I mean, pick your poison. It's about football, baseball. Space. Yeah, you make errors, right? Um, you know, if you're a diver, a gymnast, some some of those sports are perfection-based. But the real, where I see the special volleyball players are the ones that can, can move on from a mistake. Well, how are we training that? You know, mm. if you make a mistake at 24, 23 in set two in volleyball, you got another set to play. Are you going to be focused on that error? Or are you going to be able to move on? Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. I think so much of what we hear about coaching is, you know, getting the best physical performance out of the athletes. That's what the coach's job is. And I think that's the traditional view of like, can the coach whip this ragtag bunch into shape and get them to actually win something? Right. You don't talk about, okay, well, you're not going to win all the time. And what happens when you don't? Right. And I think that what you're talking about with with negative self-talk is such a huge thing because it's very easy for a person, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone, to run yourself down when you make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And and as you say, like your example with Jaylee, we talk worse to ourselves than we would Mm -hmm. our worst enemy. Right, the the things we say in our own heads, we wouldn't imagine saying out loud to to another person. But I just wonder if there's a place for negative emotion in in all of this is there a a time and a place where you can sort of go to that dark place and Mm. and live there for a minute um I don't know the answer to that question I've never thought of it like that I think one of the things that we've talked about uh, even within our app and with our sports psychiatrist is that you know, we talk about positive self-talk. Really, maybe the term should be self-talk because you're not going to be like, oh, that was a great strikeout. <laughs> Yay! You know, so I think there is some real realism to it that you, you have to acknowledge or I was mean to somebody. Like, I think we have to, ref- you know, if we make a mistake in life and I, you know, you, know, you, you lashed out at somebody, you know, you're not going to be like, that was a good job yelling at that person. You know, like, I think there's all those moments that we have to reflect. Um, I don't know if there's benefit to sit in that negativity. I, I would probably say no, but I'm sure there'd be someone that could make a pretty poignant article uh, argument that maybe it is a little bit good to be there. Um, but I do think reframing things in a productive way, I guess, is the word that I would use moving it, you know, in a productive way. Uh, you know, and I, again, I always think, everyone's a little bit different. Like for me, when I was an athlete, the way that I could be free to be my best, go for it at end game was to think of worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So like if I lose this match, is my, are my parents going to stop loving me? No. Right. So, so play free and go for it. That, that mindset for some people is very negative. 
right? Mm, so okay. I think you've got to identify what's going to motivate you and, and put you at ease. Yeah, sports psychology is something that, that absolutely fascinates yeah. me. And I, I try to talk to coaches when I'm doing pregame interviews or or whatever it may be. Um, just about the the mental side of the game because I, I'm fascinated by it. Well, and I don't think it's just the games. The other piece that I see a lot is the training. The athletes that can take feedback and not get mentally worn down are the ones that get better faster. And so you have to read as a coach, that's that emotional IQ of, okay, I've given that kid feedback. I can see on their face they're overwhelmed. And so you step back as a coach. You know, it, it's, it's counterproductive to then continue to ride them, right? So you pull back. The players that can take feedback and keep working and keep working are the ones that, you know, that progress faster. And, you know, the challenge is as a parent and as a coach is how do you recruit those athletes and how do you develop those athletes as, as parents? So the, the development since 2011 of this, this sort of real focus on the mental side of the game seems to be maybe one of the cornerstones of, of the success that you've had here at Creighton. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I do. And I think we've one thing that we've been proud of, and there's obviously times that it doesn't happen, is that we've been pretty good in tight situations. And I really, you know, we can be really good when we're up 20 to 10, take risk and hit that great ball. But how do we perform at 24-24? And that's what we talk a lot about in our program of let's go for it. So you took over a team here that had finished, what was it, 3-23 and 23 in 2002. Yep. So what were the early years uh, of building a program that hadn't won much. I mean, how do you convince kids to come to a place that doesn't have much of tradition? Yeah. Um, first of all, when I got here, the players were great young women. I thought I was probably going to be walking into more of a mess and it wasn't as big of a mess as I, as I thought, (laughs) you know, we needed to develop a little bit more talent, but we had great young women. I hired really, really well. Um, I hired Paul Gieselman, who's the head coach at Midland now. He was about 10 years older than me. He had a lot of success. He was the adult in the room and, and you know, served as a great mentor to me. Um, and then I hired Angie Oxley Barons, who's still with me now as a GA. So um, those were really critical things that, uh, you know, maybe fell into. Um, you know, what we did, I don't remember those years as being difficult. I, we were so, I continue to be really process oriented. So the first year we still went below 500, but we saw progress. We made the conference tournament, which was our ultimate goal. They'd been 10th out of 10 the year prior. We moved up to six. So, so that's a huge, you know, we, we developed that year. We, we improved and, you know, really fortunately we saw improvement every year. Actually, I think up till 2011, we took a dip, but we, we just kind of continued to, to move up. The other big thing is we moved prior to my arrival. They were playing in a high school. They were playing at Omaha South high school. And so when you talk about how do you recruit to that, that's a challenge. So we moved to the Civic Auditorium. Do you remember the Civic? Oh, of course I do. Yeah, yeah so yeah. that's been torn down now. But it was old and too big, but it still was a home court. So that was a big um, advantage from recruiting. Creighton was easy to sell from a recruiting standpoint as an institution. Certainly. You know, we had to sell the volleyball program. Our first class, our first, not the my, you know, I arrived in February so that I, we did bring in one player for that fall, but really the second year was our first class. And I think we had a top 50 class, which was a huge deal. We had five Nebraska kids. So we really locked in early in, you know, our region. And in this case, it was Nebraska because I guess my thought at that point was 
how am I going to convince a Texas kid <laughs> to come to Omaha when we're not, you know, very good? Right. But I might be able to convince a kid from North Platte. We had a North Platte kid. I might be able to convince her to come to Creighton because maybe she doesn't want to go to Texas. Maybe she wants to yeah. stay close. So that first class was really big and they came in, you know, the first kid we got in that class was Carolyn Decker. Um, Decker Romano, she's a, um, a pharmacist now here in Omaha, but she was Gatorade player of the year and she wanted to be a pharmacist. She didn't get an offer from Nebraska and she stayed. And so that catapulted that, uh, recruiting class because if she was going to come to Creighton, well, they must be, you know, trending in the right way. A kid like that, that had some cachet in the area was big for us. Why do you think volleyball has taken such a foothold in the Midwest? What is it about this part of the country? Because it was always sort of a coastal sport, mm-hmm. you know, in like 70s, 80s, maybe early 90s. And then Nebraska had some success, and it's really taken off in this part of the country. First of all, I think it's a great sport. I really do. I mean, you look at, um, you know, our growth. We're the highest, you know, of team sports for high school girls. We are number one in the country. So that means more than basketball, more than soccer. We and we continued that trend line. So a lot of a lot of kids, and I say kids because boys, it's growing also. A lot of kids love volleyball. Um, and then you know, it's specifically in the Midwest, I do think the University of Nebraska has played a huge factor in that. Um, I think we've got even when I was growing up. Uh, in Nebraska, we had great high school coaches. So that develops other coaches. So we've got, you know, good coaching that goes on at the high school level. I mean, you go out to Western Nebraska, you still at most schools have great coaches that know the game. That's not the case in, in all areas of the country, but again, that's continuing to improve, um, our club programs around the country even, but again, in the Midwest, I think are outstanding. And I compare my daughter's experiences with club uh, volleyball compared to like we've played one of them played pretty aggressive club soccer for a couple of years and then they still play club vo- basketball they've had great experiences I think and then this is just anecdotal I think the volleyball programs are more intentional with like team bondings and the stuff that I used to roll my eyes at that every month you have to have a team get together but what I saw from my daughters was they loved that. Hmm. And so the community that volleyball builds, or at least in, in our experience, and I know several of the clubs in this area do this stuff, you know, the overnights, the pool parties, it's an interesting angle. But I think sometimes at 10, 11, 12, that's what draws kids in. Now, my oldest daughter, she still likes her team a lot, but she's in it for the competition at this point. But when they're, but my 11 year old, She's in it for the friendship still yeah. at this point. And so I think club volleyball, at least again, in my experience, has done some of that stuff, the touchy-feely stuff, better than some other sports. You know, we often hear sort of the horror stories of, of youth sports of, you know, too many games, not enough practice, overbearing parents, ridiculous expectations from coaches. And I just, I wonder, do you see that in, in club volleyball at all? I think what I see in club sports is that it's a lot in addition to middle school and high school sports. Um, again, I can only speak to our experiences um, as, as a parent of multi-sport athletes. 
we have been fortunate enough to have club coaches and club directors and high school coaches that have wanted those things to work uh, together. And as long as we are communicating conflicts, they've been very supportive across the board. We have not had an instance. I know that's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, you have high school coaches. And again, I posted something on Twitter and it created a firestorm. And I love that we're having the conversation. But you have the diehard high school people that say high school should be number one. Club sports are second. My argument back is I'm not... I'm not arguing whether that's yay or nay on that. I'm arguing that kids are choosing club sports. And if you want high school sports to get some of these top kids to play other sports than their top sport, we have to be willing to work with them or we're going to lose them. Um, One example I have, even that I thought our high school basketball coach, one of our, we have a, Reese has a player on her team that's a high, high level D1 volleyball player on her team. Yeah. And she also plays basketball. She plays JV and varsity. doesn't get a lot of varsity time, but is on the team and, and does play some. Well, there was a huge volleyball tournament over President's Day. She's going to miss district basketball game. Huge deal, right? Yeah. And had her coach, she's a junior this year, had the coach said, absolutely not, you cannot miss. For that one singular day, she would have not gone out for basketball, I don't think, next year. But instead, the high school coach said, hey, you can stay. No, next year, you're probably going to have a bigger role on varsity, so I need you to make a different decision next year. (laughs) But she was supportive, and it wasn't personal. I I think the thing that I struggle with that I hear when I talk to other parents is when it becomes personal to the kids. And I do try to tell my daughters, never feel bad. The only times you should feel bad is if you don't communicate or if you skip to skip. But if you are doing something else, don't feel bad. You are not doing anything wrong. Even if someone's upset with you, you aren't doing anything wrong. And if it's a club sport, I'm sorry, I always say they're getting our money anyway. So don't, don't, <laughs> don't be upset, upset about that. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, all of it is just so interesting to me of the, the dynamics between the levels, right? The, the relationship from club to high school to college, even, you know, the relationships between clubs and colleges. It seems like there are some schools who have very tight relationships with certain clubs and they pluck players out. I don't know if you, I don't know if you have uh, tight relationships with some of those high level clubs. Well, you, you always try to make relationships with everyone. I, you know, so I think what we've tried to do is, is, you know, be friends with everybody. And there's, of course, if you have good relationship, that's going to help you because if they're interested in your school, the club person will say, yeah, that's a school you should look at. You know, we don't have a situation where it's automatic that they're going to come, you know, to Creighton or anything. But um, what I have seen, which we have not chosen is to do, and I think this is where I've seen some colleges, as soon as a kid commits, they send their that kid to a different club. Um, hmm. And we feel strongly that that wouldn't be something that we we do we feel like we'd alienate other clubs and you know if they've been you know if they're enjoying an experience somewhere that they should continue to have that experience so what's the next hurdle for your program here at Creighton what's the next jump that you have to make well I think you know we tasted that elite eight several years ago sweet 16 and um we thought this past year was the year that we were going to get over that hurdle again. So that's, that's, what's really driving us. We, you know, I, I think the next big hurdle is a final four. Um, but I, you know, I, 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 
it's a balance. I want to, I talk about that with our team a little bit. I talk about that with our staff, but we can make all those lofty goals, but how are we going to get there is usually how we spend more time. Like what are the steps, you know, from the athletes that we have to get, you know, the coaches deal with that, but then the players, like, what are we doing this summer so that we can be great, you know, in the fall. So we really lock into, we call that process, you know, mm-hmm. the, the process that, you know, how are we training? How are we eating? What are we doing? Strength and conditioning? What are we doing mentally? You know, all those pieces to make us be great. So, you know, we want some of those outcomes to come. We, we want to get back to a sweet 16 elite eight and, and push it further. Um, you know, but we want to make sure we're doing the journey the right way. That's another interesting point is, is sports is a results business, right? Mm -hmm. Like the only thing that anyone really cares about is whether you win or whether you lose. And so much of coaching is very little about the result. It's, there's so much more ahead of the result that it, it almost seems like the, the goals of, of maybe the institution or the fan base are sort of butting heads mm-hmm. with the goals of what the coaching staff needs to get done to get the results to get the results they, yeah. they don't it, it, you know it seems like fans are like I, I don't care how you do it just win but you I think you know that it matters how you do it absolutely and I think where I see coaches get in trouble is when they are totally results-based because things like that then I'm going to go fill my roster with transfers or fill my roster with JC or I'm going to you know kid makes a bunch of bad decisions and I'm still going to play them you know I think that is the quickest way to destroy a program you know I think you have to have standards and I think as a as a you know I don't obviously I want to win. I'm a competitor that the results do matter. Like you said, but I sure as heck want to do it the right way. You know, I, I feel very passionately about that. And I think I would hope my alums would say that we do that, that, you know, we won here at Creighton or we lost whatever we won at Creighton, but we did it the right way. And, um, again, you know, when, when I try to talk about my why, you know, great moments, you know, you can talk about those great winning moments, but the great moments are watching your alums flourish. I always say like, you know, I'm, I'm their coach through four years and then I'm their friend and mentor through life. And I really, that really mean, I'm not just saying that that's, that's why I coach. I want those relationships afterwards. I want to get together with alums. So, um, you know, we, I feel strongly we're doing a lot more than just building volleyball players. You know, I think if you look at our alums, they are, they are contributing to the community. They're doing a lot of amazing things. You know, I, I want, I say this a lot, but I want our alums to know they can go out and do anything that they want in the world. If that be a CEO, if that be a stay at home mom, if that be a professional athlete, you know, we have all of those in our alumni base and, you know, I just want them to know that they can go do it. It's great. So the topic of the moment in college sports is name, image, mm-hmm. likeness. And I'm sure you, you got a little eye roll there. I'm <laughs> sure you're tired of hearing about it, tired of worrying about it. So would you say that, you know, athletes being given control over their name, image, likeness, is it a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? Oh, gosh. Um, it's, it changes hard, right? So this is going to change the landscape of college athletics. Um Good, bad, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I could speculate, but the fact is we don't know. Um, I don't know what college athletics is going to look like in five years because of this and a couple other things. Um, but it's here. And so I think at this point, it's not about 
you know, pontificating whether I like it or, or don't like it. Um, we need to, we need to lean into it. We need to embrace it. Um, there are definitely good things about it. Um, you know, I, I think with anything that is so catastrophically new, navigating it is hard, <laughs> you know, yeah. what's legal, what can we do? Um, you know, what are other schools doing? You know, all those different pieces is that it's stressful, you sure. know, and then as a coach, as well, I shouldn't even say as a coach, my personality is I want to just solve everything and figure it out. Well, some of this stuff I'm not supposed to be involved in. So that's the other piece of like, what can I personally do to advance this stuff? So it's going to be a journey, you know, we're learning, uh, on the fly. Luckily, I think we have some people here at Creighton, um, that have really done a lot of due diligence to understand the landscape and things that we can be doing so that we can, I think, be ahead of the curve on some of this stuff, but yeah, it's, it's going to change things and it'll be an interesting journey. How much change do you think you could endure? Me personally? Yeah. As a coach. I mean, it, say the landscape of college athletics changes so completely that that players are employees of the university and they're getting paid yeah. and there's contracts and, and all these things. I mean, would that be a situation that you would be comfortable in? Uh, you know, I don't know. I think it would come down to the type of humans that I'm getting to coach. If I still felt like I was working with great young women and we were all on the same page of, you know, doing the right things, you know, if, if I, if I still felt that why I love coaching, which is to build young women to do amazing things, um, if that was still happening, even with financial, you know, contracts and things along those lines for them, I, I think I could. Um, but I, you know, if those things changed that I felt, you know, I think the thing that is scary is getting players to, commit to a program for a long time. Like right now it's like, okay, so I had a great year. So now I'm going to put myself on the open market and see where I can go and get more money. You're seeing that in football and men's basketball at this point, not as much in volleyball. If it gets to that point, maybe that if you don't feel like there's a loyalty, um, I could see that myself struggle with that, but I, I, you know, I haven't really gone there yet. I, I think with anything, I, people say, how long are you going to coach? They've asked me that for <laughs> the last 20 years. And, and until I always say, it, right? I'll, I'll coach until I can tell the team doesn't <laughs> like me coaching. And maybe they'd come in right now and say, we don't like you coaching, <laughs> but until that day, you know, so I don't know. Women's sports. We were going to get here. We talked about your mom, you know, in the pre title nine area. They just don't get as much respect or attention as the men's side of the ledger. I don't think that's controversial. I think that's pretty factual, right? The The media doesn't pay as much attention. The attendance is lower. Um, but as someone who covers women's sports almost primarily at this point, the competition's just as intense. The drama is just as thick. And yes, maybe the raw athleticism isn't at the same level due to biological differences, but it, it's still intense competition. It's still drama. It's all the things we love about sports are still there. So why don't people give more attention to women's sports? Yeah, it's a million dollar question, right? Um, I think from a media standpoint, um, we need to get more women in the room. You know, a lot of the people that are making the decisions uh, are following a template that has been successful for years. And so you can con continue to do what you've done. It's a lot of men in the room. So, d you know, I think 
I, I sometimes may come off that I'm competing against women's basketball and women's basketball, what they did from a television standpoint during the NCAA tournament this year is the template to follow. But the media committed to women's basketball this year. They they put every single game on a major network. Some of them were on ABC. Creighton had a game on ABC. And ESPN reported great numbers for they, that tournament. They were off the charts. They did personal stories. People love to hear about an athlete's story, you know, things along those lines. In volleyball, I think we had 12 on a major network. I can't remember the exact number. It was significantly lower, same number of games, and there's no runway prior to get people excited. Um, if you look at Big Ten, Big Ten is committed to volleyball. They have they put the exact same number of women's basketball and volleyball games on this year, and women's volleyball viewership was way, way higher than women's basketball. We just haven't been given the opportunity. And it's hard because we don't have a counterpart. I mean, a lot of people say football is our counterpart. I mean, that's the closest <laughs> thing you can get to. Now, there is men's volleyball, but it is way – I mean, they're just the numbers are yeah. exponentially different. A lot of times, I think tennis is a good example. A lot of times people think women's volleyball is is more fun to watch than men's bas- volleyball, just like women's tennis sometimes is more – the rallies are longer in tennis because in men's tennis – you know, the aces happen so often. Well, men's volleyball is a little bit that way. Women's volleyball, the rallies are longer. Um, it, you know, our game, we've continued to evolve the game to make it more television friendly. Um, so I think what we're pushing as a volleyball community is give us some opportunity and we will show. We're not just begging. Give us some runway. Put our games on television. Do some of those pieces. And we feel confident uh, that we can get the viewership. Keep in mind, we have not had a male counterpart holding, pulling us, right? If you talk about Title IX, yep. sometimes people think it's got to be sport to sport. So we haven't had token help at all. And we still are the number one sport in the country <laughs> in girls' sports. So it clearly is a sport that that people love. So so that's kind of where we are as a volleyball coaches unit. And, and we've tried to do it like on the back, you know, back burners and not say much. And, and I think we're all getting to the point that we're going to, we're going to start talking about how great of a sport it is and really try to get to those people that are making television decisions and say, Hey, you are missing a huge window right here to, to promote some awesome women, women playing sports. Well, I think just in this region, like recent, in recent years, the women's programs in at you know the three major universities in the state, Creighton, UNO, and, and in Lincoln, the women's programs have had more success than the men's programs on on the whole. I mean, you just talk about from a volleyball perspective compared to the the men's sports. I mean, your programs in the NCAA tournament every year. The the team in Lincoln's in the NCAA tournament every year. Usually one of the top seeds. UNO is a program that looks They're like they are on the yep, rise for sure, and. You know, I don't. The Creighton men's basketball team has been good. The men's soccer team's been pretty good. But outside of those two, what men's program in the state has really done anything that's noteworthy? And then you throw in the women's basketball team here at Creighton this this past season, what they've been able to do. Softball teams at UNO and and in Lincoln, the women's sports have been wildly successful in this mm-hmm. state, and and they still don't get the kind of attention that maybe they deserve. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I think um, 
I think you are seeing fan bases continue to grow. Uh, you know, women's basketball, we feel we really are hopeful here after the year that they had that we'll see that attendance jump up. You're seeing women's basketball be being supported at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Um, you know, so we just continue. We have to continue to fight the fight. You know, when people talk about the progress of Title IX, there's been amazing progress, right? Lots of opportunity. But these are areas that we still have to continue to push and push to get ourselves in the room. Because just saying, well, people don't want to come watch. I would say, uh, uh-uh, uh, uh, uh. What are we doing? Our uh, the marketing is not the same, and it mm. makes a difference. The atmosphere sometimes is not the same, and people come to events for atmosphere. So, what are we doing to create that market so people want to come and make it a social event? And so, you know, those are things that need to happen. And and I think if given the opportunity, you'll continue to see women's sports grow. Is that the key to changing perception? Then the the marketing piece of it. I don't know if it's uh, the key. I think there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of different pieces to, and I, the other thing, I'm not a marketer by the way, but one of the things that I remember a good marketing person telling me is you're going to fail a lot more than you're going to succeed. You got to throw a lot of things against the wall. So, you know, I think it's not a, it's, I I can't tell you I have the potion to, to say this is going to make it all better, but I do think we know some things that can help move it in the right direction and see what hits. All right. Well, Final thing I like to do for every podcast segment I'm calling headliners. I'm going to run out a couple of headlines. We got three of them today and we'll get your opinion on it. See what you think. Maybe it sparks a little conversation. Okay. All right. First, this one comes to us from NPR relates to what we were just talking about. The U S men's and women's soccer teams mm-hmm. will be paid equally under a new deal. And you get a big smile on your face when I read that. I was hearing about that this morning, actually. And I don't know, I haven't, I haven't dove too much into the soccer other than the fact that even at NPR, they were talking what the women have won it the last four times. The men have never won it. Yep. And um, gosh, you talk about some heroes. Those women soccer players have banded, you know, as a unit and worked to, to really change women's athletics. Uh, you know, I think they, you know, talk about breaking glass ceilings. They have done it. And, you know, anytime you make that kind of change, you're going to have haters. And I, I think that's the thing that, you know, anytime you make productive change, people, are, there's going to be people on the other side saying, no, 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 no. Um, and these guys have fought through that. And, you know, hopefully this is a stage for, for future women's sports. Well, I think in, in general for soccer in the United States, for the men's and women's teams, attendance is roughly similar. TV viewership, when they're in the World Cup for, you know, viewers in this country anyway, not around the world, obviously, but they're, they're roughly the same. And our women are in it. And, 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 and winning win. it. Yeah. yeah. So there are the premier women's it is the team sport, in the world. Uh, to do it with because of that exact reason is that they are substantially, it's see, again, I'm not, I don't know much about soccer, oh, but I it do. seems like, okay, okay, so you can help me out if I'm saying wrong things. It seems like the women are substantially better than the men on the world stage. Yes, they are. And, you know, so they're the, maybe the lowest hanging fruit. And then you've got strong women that were willing to take the fight. Um, and, you know, hopefully they'll change the landscape for many others in the future. Yeah. And I don't, I don't like when they say, well, yeah, but they, the women are good, but they couldn't beat a men's team. Well, of course not. It's no, not the it, point. It's right? yeah. You're apples and oranges here. They're against light competition they're winning mm-hmm. and they're winning a lot and they're winning big and you know if 
if they're drawing the kind of numbers they're drawing, why why are we not making it equal? Absolutely. That's that's the position I was in. Okay, let's get to number two. You're going to be interested in this one. It, it's uh, it's a few days old now, but it comes to us from LSUSports.net. Cloth and Nuss win AVP Austin. Mm-hmm. Your former player Taryn Cloth wins an AVP Tour event. How'd you feel about that? Yeah, Taryn has just been doing such an amazing job. You know, Taryn, the ironic thing, you know, when Taryn graduated in three and a half years, she went to LSU in the spring. And then the following year was supposed to be her fifth year. And COVID hits in, in March. And she was playing number three at the time. And the team, I think, was number one in the country. And I remember her calling and she was crying and she said, I can't believe this is happening. And, you know, and, you know, just trying to talk her off the ledge a little bit. And then, you know, the NCAA provides another year and she she and her teammates decided they were going to come back. Well, this is the cool part. So she didn't just sit on her duff during COVID. She transformed her her body not that her body needed transformation but it became a sand body a beach Mm -hmm. volleyball body and she um played a lot and so by the time the next year came around she was playing number one and she was playing number one with who people considered the top beach player ever to play collegiate beach and it's a pretty new sport but her partner Kristen nuss has been Mm -hmm. named that so they anyway they had an amazing career you know they were undefeated number one in the country um and then, you know, they their very first AVP event, they won. And they beat the team that had been in the Olympics. Not the top team, but our number two team. They beat them in that tournament. And they beat uh, Sarah Pavin's team yeah. on the way to the to the final as well, who's a name that people in Nebraska right, that, know. Yeah, yeah. So she's done some amazing things. And gosh, I you know, Taryn is just one of, again, like you talk about having incredible humans on our team. Taryn is that. She's just such a great young woman. And um, I'm so proud of her and I think she's loving it. And, uh, you know, her, their goal is Paris. So my oh, wow. goal is to raise money so I can go to Paris. <laughs> so that's what we hope is going to happen. That's great. That's great. Final headline. And this one's just a little local flavor, nothing to do with sports. Just want to see where you stand on it. it comes to us from KETV, the Omaha streetcar authority meets for the first time. Have you been following the streetcar story at all? Well, I know we're going to have a streetcar and isn't noodle or Jay... Noddle. Noddle, yeah. yeah. I saw. I read a brief thing on it. So, um, hey, I'm all for that stuff. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, like, absolutely. How do you I feel about it? I think anything we can do to, um, you know, I remember I moved to Omaha right when, uh, well, back then it was CenturyLink. Is that what it was named first? Now it's uh, CHI Center. Yeah, I think it was. The or same. Quest Center. It was, it was Quest. Quest. Yes. Quest was the so first So the name. big convention center was being built. And I can still remember moving into town. It was almost done. But some people were like, why are we spending all this money? Yes. It's going to be such a waste. And then, you know, I've got the people... And I'm, I always think you've got to be forward thinking and think that thing was transformational for our city. When oh. we, when we got to Creighton, I mean, from where I'm sitting today, right. You know, in Sokol arena all the way to, um, to convention center was just kind of a, you know, open area, kind of rundown old buildings. And now it's, you know, it's, it's a thriving area of, uh, commerce and so many cool things. So my point with that is, you know, you've got to be forward thinking, how are we going to expand our population base? Well, streetcar might be a way to do that. So, so I'm on board. Let's go. All right. That's great. (laughs) Awesome. 
Well, Coach, it's been a great conversation with you today, sharing the story of your life and your coaching career. And I think there's a lot of things in there that are going to resonate with folks, especially, you know, talking about uh, the mental side and the self-talk. I think that's just that's just great stuff. So I thank you for sharing all that with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. That's going to do it for episode four. We'll be back in two weeks with number five. <laughs>